This is hell. Today on This Is Hell, there is a worldwide housing crisis. Globally, more and more people cannot find adequate housing, and more and more people are becoming homeless. Meanwhile, newly constructed homes stand empty, waiting for there to be people who can afford them. It didn't used to always be like this. Fifty years ago, prior to neoliberalism, public spending on low-income housing was not seen as Something that was bad, a handout to the undeserving, that disincentivizes a productive life. Too often, the solution to the crisis has been build more affordable housing. But more affordable housing has been built again and again and again. More subsidies have gone to the private sector to make building low-income housing profitable enough for the private sector to pursue public housing, and still we have a growing housing crisis. It's as if the problem isn't the supply for homes, but the demand. And the demand is undermined by those demanding housing, not having enough money, not earning enough in wages to actually purchase a home. Maybe the problem isn't how few low-income homes there are. Maybe the problem is how little money people make and are forced to make by investors who insist on higher profits. We'll consider the housing crisis and what can be done about it when we speak in a few minutes with geography scholar Dr. Deborah Potts, author of Broken Cities Inside the Global Housing Crisis. Deborah has recently retired from the geography department of King's College London, before which she lectured at the School of Oriental and African Studies. She is now an emeritus reader in human geography and a member of the Urban Futures and Contested Development Research Domains at King's College. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, live-streaming host, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this morning's show is Richard Norwood. Richard, what's new in your world? Anything different about your neighborhood during the pandemic? Good morning, sir. Good morning. Um... Well, not a whole lot. Uh, I do have an elementary school near my place that's completely vacant now, but there is a soccer field right adjacent to my house, and there's always kids out there playing. <laughs> and and there's a, like a Sunday morning like amateur league that plays every morning, so there's some good spreading going on there. Of the are the are the <laughs> playgrounds closed at the park? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they took down like all the. Uh, basketball hoops and stuff no kidding but but like there's still like swings and stuff there and people hang out there i see but because my neighborhood's crazy man uh the uh all the basketball hoops are still up that's they say the parks are closed all the playgrounds are closed but there are tons of people in all the playgrounds all the tape that was keeping people out all of that is gone right every saturday night now there's this huge there's a dj that comes out to warren park and there's this huge party of at least a couple hundred people jammed together nobody's wearing masks nobody's social distancing whatsoever the other big thing in our neighborhood is people are like tuning up their cars so they rev incredibly loud now that everybody's been bored by fireworks because that ended in july so now they're just revving their cars really loud and they burn out in the uh, warren park parking lot every saturday night during these huge parties so our neighborhood is getting kind of crazy. I think the police have just kind of given up on the neighborhood. Yeah. It's been a little nutty the last couple of days because there's whatever the Mexican holiday. So all the Latinos are out driving around with their big ass flags on the cars. Is and it stuff. Puerto Rican Independence Day? <laughs> no, it's a Mexican holiday. I can't remember which one it is. I should have looked it up. Uh, friends of mine used to tell me that when they were teenagers living in Pilsen, they would uh, drive up to Humboldt Park for Puerto Rican Independence Day. They were all Mexican. They are all Mexican. And uh, they said that they would pull up to Puerto Ricans as high school kids sure. just taunting people. They'd go up to Puerto Ricans and say, oh, so what, again, what are you independent from? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, dude, that's really that's really cold. This week's question mail is, you look amazing, what's your secret? You look amazing, what's your secret? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail wins our new gray on black This Is Hell Truckers cap. You can check out the new gray on black This Is Hell Truckers cap and all our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to it to us at thisishellradio or at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show, Thursday's show, when we are announcing this week's winner. 
following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Richard is going to have more of your answers to this week's question, Mel, after our guest. Again, the question is, you look amazing. What's your secret? You look amazing. What's your secret? Have your replies to us by the end of tomorrow's show when we will be announcing this week's winner following the moment of truth. During the moment of truth this week, Jeff waits for just the right moment. Live from Hangover Country, this is Hell, and it's time for listener feedback. Again, email us, direct message us via Twitter, send us a message via Facebook, and if you do, we'll likely share your thoughts on air. Mika sent us an email, which I'm concerned about discussing because it's about, you know, one of those crazy medical cure-alls. Mika sent us an email writing, listening to your show on Monday on agroecology with Helena Paul. And I know you have done other shows on our industrial profit mad food system, so I thought you might find this interesting. And given all your various aches and pains, I thought it just might help. I was hugely doubtful myself, and I'm nothing short of shocked by how much this new diet has helped me, and I'm not one to go from health fad to health fad. So, Mika sends a link to a Twitter post of a Dr. Kate Shanahan on Bill Maher's show talking about something called the fat burn fix. And I, too, like Mika, am skeptical because the words fat, burn, fix, Bill, and Maher uh, are all involved, which means this is probably some scam. Mika explains the argument made a lot of sense to me for a lot of reasons when it comes to the fat burn fix. Mostly when you look at photos from 50 years ago, or especially 100 years ago, there are no fat people, none. You just can't find them. Now look around any group you are in. What is the percentage today of the fat people you see around you? 50%? 70%? Something serious has changed, and not just on some individual level, but on a social historic level and how we get fed today by big corporate food interests. Our health being merely incidental for their profit. This reminds me of a great article at the New York Review of Books, Amika says, by... Timothy Snyder, another past guest here on This Is Hell. Snyder writes, We would like to think we have health care that incidentally involves some wealth transfer. What we actually have is wealth transfer that incidentally involves some health care. Mika continues, A lot of people have thought about the change and pointed out how much more sugar we now eat, but Dr. Shanahan has a different take, one that also looks at the history and growth of big corporate food production as well as looks at the difference in what types of fats industrial foods use, namely ones that are profitable and also ones that never existed in our diets in significant amounts in the previous tens of thousands of years until about 100 years ago, and especially about 50 years ago, which lines up with the beginning of neoliberalism. For example, for example, Procter and Gamble, Mika writes, there's a great story about them starting out basically marketing a waste product that we now know today as Crisco. I love, in a love-hate kind of way, the idea that in our hyper-national arrogance we think we can outthink nature and all of our history as a species and improve it, and instead it kills us slowly over and over. And still we believe in that rationally and ignore the profits involved. For me, Micah says, if this worked for weight loss, great, and it has. But also eating in a way that trusts one's own body reduces a ton of inflammatory pains and gets away from the fake rationality that is really corporate profit that also seemed worthwhile for me. The two went hand in hand. That would not be the case maybe for you. You will have to largely ignore all the emphasis on weight loss, although I would still pay attention to the hypoglycemia stuff. Here's the thing for you and why I sent you this. Dr. Shanahan makes these really wild claims about the new industrial fats causing loads of inflammation. They are new to us in evolutionary terms, and our bodies handle them very badly. She gets into the chemistry details of it, which is really interesting and makes a lot of sense to me. Those seemingly wild claims I kind of ignored. They were just too far out there. Hyperbolic snake oil salesman Boy, is the writing sometimes really awful, but I have been doing this for a few months now, and A, it's pretty easy and sustainable, and B, I seriously have not felt this good in a long, long time. All the creaky, oh, I'm getting old aches are way, way reduced, and in the last year, those had been getting pretty bad, and beyond that, I don't know quite how to explain this, but it's not just reduced or nearly absent pain. But it actually feels good to move. There's a kind of physical, I don't know, joy, delight in moving that I forgot I had had. I'm, I'm not even working out. I'm pretty blown away. And if this can help you with any of your pains, 
Maybe it's worth a look, and maybe she could be a guest, although she comes really close to some kooky COVID-19 denialism as well. But hey, maybe that could be an interesting part of the interview. Mika also sends a PDF of the book because apparently Dr. Shanahan's book is available for free online as a PDF. And I got to say, PDF, I got to say the uh, problem Mika has with this diet and the problems he does not have are mine exactly. Sure, I do not doubt that if I do not consume the many new fats that have been introduced into the food chain over the past 50 years, yeah, I bet I'd feel better. And I'm going to look into that aspect of it. That said, Even when someone introduces me to a diet that does make me feel better, far too often whoever is selling that diet makes such wild and unsubstantiated claims that the diet is dismissed, no matter how effective it is. My sister-in-law reads cookbooks all the time, and she has told me over and over again how she will read these great dietary ideas, and then the writer makes claims that are just crazy, like uh, you eat this way and all of a sudden you can astral project or fly or whatever. So Mika, thanks. I appreciate it. I'll check it out and ignore Dr. Shanahan's more nutty claims. Uh, We got an email from Rob. I think I'll get to that tomorrow. Uh, Let's see. Yeah, I want to mention this one that we got from Ken. Ken writes, hello, Chuck and Alex. As always, thanks for all you do. It is massively appreciated. In particular, I wanted to thank Chuck for speaking out Thursday morning, August 13th, on the horrific police stenography, I can't really refer to it as reporting done by Chicago's local news outlets about the happenings on Michigan Avenue and in the loop. This is how has been the only media source I've seen to point out that what the police did in the Englewood neighborhood on the weekend of August 8th and 9th, that blowback, the horrible pandemic response, and why it all might trigger people to see the need to resort to any means available in order to survive, and why caring more about corporate businesses over people is what seems to get these major news outlets most excited and ready to bootlick for the city. And I just want to say one thing about that. Wow, it is really amazing that we're the only media source that did this coverage. You know what we did? We actually read the press release from Black Lives Matter that was put out that night. We actually read it. That same press release was sent to channels 2, 5, 7, 9, 11, 32. All of them got it. ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, PBS. They all got it here in Chicago. They just, it's not a concern of theirs. If it's a press release from Black Lives Matter, that just goes right in the trash. Ken writes, there was recently, actually on the night you delivered your monologue, one of the most blatantly racist investigative stories on NBC5 Chicago about the scared residents living in Chicago's Streeterville neighborhood near downtown. If people know the demographics of the area, then you fully understand the bourgeoisie media bias in the coverage. I believe everyone interviewed was white, while all the scary video featured black people. There was even a soundbite used during one interview saying, if we don't get a handle on this, Chicago will become Detroit. I think listeners to This Is Hell know the subtext of that statement. It was a textbook case of turning up white fears. Absolutely disgusting work by the channel. I thought I'd tuned on Fox News by mistake. For those of you who do not live in the Chicago area, by the way, this is just me. This isn't Ken writing. This is me. That's what the corporate media and their corporate interests trot out every so often here in Chicago. If you aren't more friendly friendly to business and let business do as it pleases, then Chicago will become Detroit. It won't, but that's how they scare the public and business interests and you know to back their business interests and their media cohort and blowing their dog whistles for them. It's really pretty disgusting stuff when they compare it or threaten that all of a sudden Chicago is going to become Detroit. Ken continues, even with a show named This Is Hell, it is less hellish than what goes for news on the local and national mainstream outlets. Thanks again for all the great work. I'll continue to be a Patreon member for as long as I'm able, which I hope is a long time. Good health to you both, Ken. Good health to you as well, Ken, and to everyone who's listening. Good health. As for Streeterville, a lot of people who work in local media live downtown, as it is very convenient when it comes to commuting to work with all the local stations in the downtown Loop area. And Streeterville is just across the river from the Loop. So they tend to report on how their lives are being affected, which means more coverage of the well-off downtown neighborhood where they live with all the other rich people. Very few 
of the people in the media live in the surrounding neighborhoods, but many do live in the nearby suburbs, which means local media focuses far too much on downtown and the suburbs while forgetting all of us who live in between, in the city, in the neighborhoods. Those who cannot afford to live downtown in the suburbs are far more inaccessible to us. It, it makes sense that this is the reporting they do. It is what directly affects them. The problem is the news is not supposed to be about them. It's not supposed to be about you. Far too often local news is about them, and it's not about us. That's listener feedback. You can email us at chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com, or alex at thisishell.com. You can direct message us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Coming up on This Is Hell, the global housing crisis and what is to be done about it. And more of your answers to this week's question, Mel, which is, you look amazing, what's your secret? You look amazing, what's your secret? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. There is a housing crisis, and the way it is usually addressed is through growing the supply of low-income housing. But what if the problem with low-income housing isn't supply? What if the real problem is those who are demanding housing simply cannot afford it? What if the problem with housing is capitalism? Here to help us understand the housing crisis, geography scholar Dr. Deborah Potts is author of Broken Cities, Inside the Global Housing Crisis. Welcome to This Is Hell, Dr. Potts. Hi, Chuck. Thank you. Uh, How should I address you? Deborah, Dr. Potts, what would you like? Uh, I'm usually called Debbie. All right, I'll go with that. That sounds much better. Yeah. Debbie uh, is uh, her previous books include her 2006 work, African Urban Economies, Viability, Vitality, or Vitiation, and the 2010 title, Circular Migration in Zimbabwe and Contemporary Sub-Saharan Africa. She was recently retired from the Geography Department of King's College London, before which she lectured at the School of Oriental and Asian or in African Studies. She is now an emeritus reader in human geography and a member of the Urban Features and Contested Development Research Domains at King's College. How would you describe the current housing crisis that we face? What is the current housing crisis? In case there are people listening right now who are unaware for whatever reason that there is a housing crisis. Well, I think there are two um, aspects to this. One of them is the sort of immediate material issue, I think, that uh, I believe that we have, we are, we are in a crisis. Uh, One can say that housing, the lack of affordable housing for low-income groups is a chronic condition of capitalism. I think that's right. And in fact, that's a central part of my, uh, my, my thesis in this book. But the book also tries to <clears throat> explain why I feel that from the end of the last century and up until this current time, and unfortunately, I believe also into the future, this has shifted further into an increasing crisis. So if you like, the chronic condition has become increasingly critical and it's getting worse and worse. Um, So that's the sort of material thing. And I try to explain in this book why I think that has happened. And there are a whole series of things which are behind that. The key one being that uh, from 1980, as we all know from the 1980s, the, uh, the system of global capitalism shifted from uh, what one might think of as the post-war social contract, the post-Second World War social contract, which was extremely influential in Europe in mitigating all sorts of the worst aspects of capitalism for the poor, if you like, in a very crude sense. And those things have started to be unpicked and then have been very rapidly unpicked, particularly after the financial crash of 2008. But the other thing about the housing crisis that I argue in this book, which you touched upon in your introduction there, 
is this concept uh, that I use in this book called The Housing Dilemma. And The Housing Dilemma uh, is the idea that, uh, that it is actually impossible for capitalism to address the problem of housing affordability uh, because embedded in the nature of profit-seeking uh, capitalist activity in property sectors are a set of conditions that make it impossible to make profit out of low-income people. Uh, so that you are trying to square a circle there if you rely on them supplying that housing that is never ever going to work and right throughout the world and it doesn't matter whether you're in Harare in Zimbabwe or whether you're in Mumbai or whether you're in Rio de Janeiro or whether you're in Chicago or whether you're in London this repeats itself over and over and over again so that's uh, the, the sort of two answers to that, the actual increasing nature of the crisis. It really is a crisis now. It's, it's, it's gone beyond the chronic condition, if you like. You write that if uh, the logic goes when it comes to uh, responding to the housing crisis with building more low-income housing, you write that the logic is that if enough houses were built, market prices would fall into line with demand. The magic of the market of the invisible hand would provide the solution. That approach looks at the housing crisis, which is manifest across the urban world and most particularly in the largest cities where economic opportunities are apparently greatest from the wrong end of the telescope. The real problem is demand. So it's not a, a shortage of supply. It's an abundance of demand that is at the heart of any global housing crisis. How do we understand the housing crisis differently when we view it as too much demand and not too little supply? Because the interdependence of supply and demand can lead to the two being conflated and possibly difficult to separate and think of independently from one another. So how do we view whatever housing crisis is being experienced as a problem with demand and not a problem with supply? How do we view that differently when we see it as a problem with a demand and not a problem with supply? Mm. The, the issue here is that housing markets are segmented, right? So people are often familiar with the idea of labour markets being segmented and that, for example, you have uh, situations where there are whole lots of people who can be, uh, who can be high ends of the labour uh, market um, and increasing the number of people in that end of the market is never going to satisfy demands for nursing assistance or something at the other end of the market. And this is the situation also with housing. The issue is that um, the supply of most types of housing makes no difference to the housing problems faced by poorer groups, as they simply cannot afford most types of housing. Um, and if one looks at demand, one has to look at the labour market. My view is that if you look at the labour market in any society, you can find uh, huge numbers of jobs, uh, m hundreds of millions of jobs across the globe, if you like, in, in urban situations, where if people set aside uh, money that they can just about afford to do to, to pay for their housing, which is always the largest element of the budget, and leave enough for them to eat and clothe themselves and send their children to school and various things like that, that most of the types of housing that is legal and decent, and these are crucial points, uh, is simply too expensive for them to afford. They just can't afford it. And that is the problem. So if you look at it from the point of view of monetary demand, and that's what the laws of supply and demand are about, they're about monetary demand. If you look at it in terms of monetary demand, they simply do not command sufficient monetary demand to house themselves in a legal, decent way through the market processes. So is there not a housing demand as much as there is a demand for money? Is the problem not a shortage of supply of housing, but a shortage of supply of money for the poor? And if that is the case, what would explain to you why housing advocates, people who do want to help the poor, would be pushing for 
just a larger supply of low-income housing instead of higher wages for the poor? Of course, it could be tackled from both ends. I mean, there are people who argue that the thing to do is to increase everybody's wages, you know, have a minimum wage, which is sufficiently high for people to command enough monetary demand to enter the uh, the housing market. That would work. Uh, but I have to say that I think it's fantastically unlikely, uh, particularly since the scope of this book is global. I'm looking at societies uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, where people aren't even beginning to touch the side of the possibility of earning enough money. Uh, you'd have to increase their incomes perhaps by 30 or 40 fold. This isn't going to happen. Right. You are right, however, in terms of saying that, you know, another way of answering this would be to greatly increase the supply of housing that is suitable for low income people. However, that housing always involves a significant subsidy from the state or it can involve actually, let's let's put this more broadly, non market solutions. It doesn't always have to be straightforwardly from the state, collective ways of approaching issues to do with property and so on can also help. Uh, but it is that question of intervention by the state to ameliorate this situation um, and provide housing that is significantly below the market rate um, that the cost of it is severely below the market rate, that will solve the problem. If you can provide that sort of housing, you will, at, at, at scale, you will solve the problem. In Britain, for example, which had the largest council housing, we call it council housing here, um, projects in the whole world uh, in the post-war situation and built millions of council houses. Um, by the end of the 1970s, we had actually solved the housing dilemma. We had solved the housing problem. There was no shortage of housing. People could move between different parts of the country who were in low-income jobs. They could gain access to housing. And it was long-term housing. They would, they would not be evicted or moved. They could live their whole lives there. And their children could move into the housing as well and stay in the housing. We had solved the problem. However, as you know, what happened at the, 19, at the end of the 1970s was that post-war social contract started to collapse and Margaret Thatcher came to power in, uh, in the 1980s and, that was, and it all began to come undone. So all that council housing began to be picked away at and to disappear and to be sold off and to be privatised. And as it has become privatised, it has been taken out of the pool so that the pool has been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. So we have massive amounts of supply, an oversupply of expensive housing um, and sort of middle type of housing as well and a shrinking and reducing supply of affordable housing for those on low incomes. Was it simply unaffordable? Was that kind of council housing to that extent? Uh, was that just simply unaffordable? Because that was the argument at the time, whether it was the Thatcher government or the Reagan government. The argument at the time was that these, you know, we may have sound, solved the uh, housing crisis problem, any kind of housing problem in this country. But this isn't sustainable because the government simply cannot continue to afford it. Was that the case at the time? That was the biggest argument for ne neoliberalism. No, no. Not at all. I think, you know, there's, there's, there's no evidence for that. It was tremendously successful. Um, and that wasn't the problem. I think that, that 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 was not the reason why those things were being picked away at. The reason was an ideology, which um, you know, obviously you are familiar with, that it's almost a knee-jerk thing. It's so deeply, inherently held by those who are ideologues of in the sort of neoliberal phase of capitalism, if you like, that the government should not intervene as far as possible and that things should be left as much as possible to the private sector. Now, in addition to that, um, the previous system, if you like, didn't make a great deal of money for big property developers. Much of this stuff was built by the state and it was 
rather unlike America, for example. Um, but it was built by the state. It was run by local government. Um, and this was not creating uh, massive amounts of profit for property developers, builders, and so on. So I think America is the is you know the the, the, the sort of apex of the property development, the financialization of housing worldwide, whereby the government does intervene. It would be wrong to say the government doesn't intervene at all, but it intervenes in ways which, as far as possible, always prov provide as much profit as possible to the uh, sort of capitalist uh, housing sectors. Uh, and that is, in many cases, quite explicit in the way in which uh, you know, American government policy works. Now, and here in, as I say, in, in Europe, but also all the way across uh, across the world, say from India to Africa to Latin America, those ideologies and those ideas came in in the 1980s. Uh, so that I, before my very eyes, because I work on sub-Saharan Africa, I was watching successful low-income housing projects, which were delivering um, site and service plots to very, very poor people, but giving them a chance to live reasonably within the city limits um, and have access to basic services, which are absolutely crucial, water, sewerage, and so on. And seeing those just melting away before your eyes because it was uh, there was no profit in it. And so that you were, they started to bring in building societies have started to bring in ways of financializing that, of trying to loan money to these very poor people. And to cut a very long story and sad story short, they couldn't afford it and the whole things, the whole thing fell apart. Um, so it was impossible. So when you looked into these housing projects, you often found that the cost of these things that were promoted and publicized as low-income housing projects were no such thing because the very lowest amount of money that you would need to actually be eligible to be what they call a beneficiary of such project was way, way over the vast majority of the incomes of the people who were actually living in them. In fact, they were nearly all of them renting from other people who had got in through various corrupt and illicit practices. Uh, and this was extremely widespread, and it goes on and on and on. You constantly get what I call poor washing, this system where low income, or, sorry, projects which are promoted as low income or as affordable housing, I should say, that then now that term affordable housing is always used, are no such thing. Um, it is just a political distraction technique, in my view, uh, from what is really going on. So we have neoliberalism, we have uh, politicians that are supportive of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is always seemingly focused and prioritized on the bottom line. Is this more privatized low-income housing, affordable housing, if you will, is it any cheaper, does it cost any less for the public's bottom line than the public housing did in the past? That's another aspect of this. This is supposed to save the public money and deliver the service in a much more efficient way. Is this kind of privatized public housing any, le more, any less expensive to taxpayers than the previous public housing was? It's a good question, actually. Um, I think it would be so variable that it, it, it would be careful not to uh, answer that in absolutely sort of, no, it isn't. But um, it probably is. It probably is cheaper. The trouble is, uh, you know, if you stop fund, I mean, if you think of another sector, if, if, if you just stop funding nurses I and mean, if you cut the national health system, as you know, have, we have in this country, if you cut it and cut it and cut it, you do actually end up spending less money on it. The outcome is, of course, that a lot of more people die. <laughs> a lot more people have very poor health. So what you get maybe is that you do spend less. Um, and particularly local governments uh, in some ways ended up spending less because they actually weren't allowed to spend money. They, it was forbidden in this country for local governments to build more council housing. So they did spend less on council housing because it was actually 
against the law. It was made against the law for them to do that. But on the other hand, the outcome is that people didn't have access to affordable housing. And as I explained in this book, what happens, and it's, a, it's, a, it's like a slow onset disaster. It doesn't happen just like that. It didn't happen immediately in the 1980s. It was gradual. It started to build up. And then in the 1990s, it got worse and worse and worse. You get a system where the, the ways in which people start to become housed in, and I'm talking about wealthy cities here in particular, you know, in, you know from Barcelona to London to Berlin to uh, Rome, um, let alone American cities. What happens is that you, you is that is that people are increasingly housed in inadequate housing. They are overcrowded, and this, of course, has become extremely important in this current pandemic. So they're living in very overcrowded situations, which weren't happening so much before. They are living in very dangerous situations. They are paying far too much of their so-called disposable income after tax and so on for their for the accommodation they're living in as a consequence they suffer because they can't eat properly because they can't they struggle to get to work because they can't afford transport and so on all sorts of necessary things that are needed for them to live full uh, and healthy lives are being cut into because of them paying too much in terms of rent and usually we're talking about rent here so the outcome is not that they have affordable housing and the and the, the cost of it to the state has gone down whether the cost of it gets this to the state or not goes down they are not living in decent housing that's and that is an extremely poor outcome if the housing crisis, as you were saying, is not a function of capitalism as much as it is ideological and about what is determined to be right, if you will, and in this case it is wrong to provide subsidies, uh, so it is right to have a housing crisis, does that make the housing crisis easier or more difficult to address? If it's not a function of the market but of ideology, is the housing crisis easier? Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 No, no, I'm, that's not my argument at all. Sorry if I didn't make that clear. Okay. It is a function of the market because it is, the, the, it's, it's this chronic condition of capitalism that there will always, it, the the lower income people in the income distribution in any city are not going to be able to house themselves decently and legally. And that's it. That's true if you're, I say, if you're in Nairobi or if you're in Lima or if you're in New York. They're not going to be able to do that if there is a reliance on the on capitalism um, and on a private sector for profit provision. So that is a chronic condition. It is a problem of uh, of of capitalism, and it is also a problem of capitalism if you look at it from my end of the telescope, because so many people are on these extremely low incomes. So I'm not saying that this is not a problem of capitalism for certain. I'm saying it very much is a problem of capitalism. But you're also saying it's an ideological problem as well. Oh, yeah. yes. Sorry. Yes. What I'm saying is there are different phases of capitalism. And I, I, I think that this is, this is perhaps very much, perhaps more apparent um, uh, if one lives uh, in Europe because of the tremendous significance of the post-war social contract which really did change the nature of capitalism so we still had capitalism you know um and we still had governments that were large you know working very much hand in hand with the private sector and doing what they could to help them along and so on and so forth but the nature of the Second World War had meant really, it brought about a significant moment. And it did, of course, in America too, because there were all sorts of housing policies which were, it certainly didn't work out evenly in terms of who they benefited. But they did benefit people on low incomes, some people on low incomes, um, who would not have been able to enter the, um, the property market anyway uh, before. But in you know in Europe there were there was mass provision of subsidised housing and indeed subsidised health, um, and it was this that made much of Europe a pretty good place to live. 
um, at that time. So it is this. It is this other phase of capitalism. Of course, c- c- capitalism is always reinventing itself. It's when it reinvents itself um, with a new. I say it, this is why it's called neoliberal. It's not a new ideology, of course, because it goes back to the nineteenth-century-old-fashioned liberalism and free trade and all the rest of it. Um, but when it comes back to that, you know, we want free trade, we want free markets, we want a situation where the main role of government is to facilitate entrepreneurs, profit, profit making and so on. So you can provide the services that are absolutely necessary for that, an educated population, for example, in certain circumstances. Um, but you leave to the market things such as the provision of housing. Um, and th- so it is, if you like, the way in which um, the nature of capitalism um, and of government policy shifts over time. So it was reshaped after the 1980s. And you say that the measurement and conceptualization of what is affordable housing is deeply political. How would you describe those politics? What would you call the politics that allow for this kind of housing crisis? This is yes. This it is deeply political. In fact, the 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 sort of the guru, if you like, writing about that it was an American now late, unfortunately, Michael Stone, who wrote about housing affordability, who researched housing affordability, and uh, in in the states. And it happens. I have to say, it happens all over the world. There are tremendous people working on this in sub-Saharan Africa, as well. But the but it, it comes down to the the setting of the standards, if you like, um, in terms of understanding how much um, a family, a household, an individual, if they're an individual household, can be expected to, or in some in a way, allowed to spend on their housing. Um, to make it to it to be affordable because the thing about housing is that you know it's 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 the largest part of your household budget and it's not something that you can reduce it's not like food you know you could live on very very cheap food for a month and and then to the next month wait until you your income improves this doesn't work with housing you if you're renting you're likely to get evicted if you've got a mortgage after a few months they're going to foreclose on you these things cannot happen so Depending on how much you're expected to pay is absolutely crucial. And many housing uh, uh, advocates um, and agencies such as UN Habitat and so on will take a rough rule of thumb of about 30% of disposable income. Now, of course, if you're very rich, you could pay 70% of your income on your housing and still have masses of money (laughs) to live on. But if you're middle income, lower middle income or poor, 30% is, you know, can be too much. So so 30% is a rough rule of thumb. And it's when people start to mess around with that and say, oh, well, no, it's fine. You know, people are paying more than that. I mean, most people in London and New York and in Chicago will be paying way over that, way, way over that. And when low income are paying it, people are paying over that, then it is really eating into the um, amount of money they have to spend on on other things. Uh, but it is very easy for politicians to say things like David Cameron, uh, one of our previous prime ministers, uh, who just said, oh, this housing affordability thing is, I just think people make too much of this. He said, an affordable house is simply one that somebody can afford. Um, and it was an infamous statement, but it's this sort of thing where there is this, uh, you know, this sort of dis- dodging around and saying, okay, these houses are affordable. We are, we are building affordable housing here. He was always building affordable housing. Our current prime minister, Boris Johnson, says he is going to build affordable housing and so on. But when you look at the cost of it um, in comparison to a 30% or 40% or even 50% limit on how much the disposable income of perhaps people in the the lowest, you know, the, the, the bottom half of the income distribution, so that half of all the people in London could pay. They couldn't pay it. They couldn't even begin to pay it. So how dare they call this affordable housing? That's why it's political. It's by, it's, it's like talking up 
this issue of we are providing affordable housing when anyone doing a back of the envelope calculation can see that this is complete and utter nonsense. It isn't affordable in any way. I know that you've already touched on this, but I want to make sure our audience uh, fully understands this. You write low-income housing projects are usually far too expensive for most of the households they were meant to help. So who do they help, if anyone? Who benefits from low-income housing, if not the people who have low income? Yeah. Well, nowadays, (laughs) nowadays, um, it is generally uh, the people who are uh, in the higher ends of the income distribution. So it, what what happens, I mean, for example, we have a, a, a system here called Help to Buy. Um, and the Help to Buy scheme means that the government put in various incentives and, and, and help to, to make mortgage payments a bit lower, to make it a bit easier to get a mortgage and so on. And what the people who have benefited from that are the people who are in the, say, 5 to 10 percentile group above the the point at which the housing dilemma stops, if you like. So the housing dilemma people are those who just can't house themselves. Oh, do we lose her? Oh... Reestablish Richard, and we'll get Dr. Potts back on the line. You are listening to This Is Hell broadcast every day, I should say podcast, every day, live streaming at 10 a.m. Monday through Friday, Monday through Thursday here at thisishell.com on Fridays at the exact same time, 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell, where we feature a brand new monologue from me, as well as an archived interview that is currently unavailable online. What we are doing, uh, one of the reasons that we are doing this Patreon is to make it so all of our past interviews will be available and accessible to everyone free online. That's part of our entire project, but that's 25 years of archives, so we need to raise money in order to pay people to help us rebuild that archive. So if you want to show your support for This Is Hell, all you have to do is go to thisishell.com and click on support. Or you can just go to patreon.com slash thisishell and subscribe to our Patreon podcast again, which is uh, streams live every Friday at about 10 a.m. And then we podcast it around 2 p.m. as we do all of our shows. So if you are listening now live and you just tuned in and you want to hear the entire show, tune back in around 2 o'clock and we'll have the entire show posted online. Uh, let's see. What else do I want to tell you about what stuff is coming up on the show this week? Tomorrow, of course, it's Thursday, so we'll have Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. This week, what's the thing that Jeff's doing? Oh, yeah. Jeff is doing things right on time, I believe it is. Uh, and our guest tomorrow is going to be... We should be good, sir. Oh, okay. Uh, Dr. Potts is online. Debbie, are you there? Hi. Hi, Debbie. Great. I'm so glad that we got you back on the line. I was afraid that we weren't going to be able to get you. We are speaking with Dr. Deborah Potts. She is author of Broken Cities Inside the Global Housing Crisis. There's this one aspect of your book that I really want to make certain that we touch on, and we've only got about 10 minutes left. You write that one definition of market failure is where the operation of market forces leads to a net social welfare loss. This is economic speak, uh, economic speak, but it describes the situation in global South cities where informal, unplanned housing has emerged with very poor, no, no services, or where, where outright slums have developed. That housing is very often the outcome of unregulated market forces that may be able to deliver housing affordable to the poor, but it is often problematic and sometimes downright dangerous to, for the residents' social welfare. This, again, is market uh, failure. It's dating back to I don't know, to the late 80s, the term failed state has been commonly used in the news media to describe nations where government has broken down to the point of being unable to provide uh, basic services or acting in any way like a sovereign state. But the term failed market is not one I've ever heard in any news media ever. Debbie, how often do we mistake a failed market for a failed state? Oh, I think all the time. I really do. Um uh, I mean, the moment you, you you were saying all that, I mean, I was thinking that one of the ways, in fact, during the 20th century, the primary way in which um, urbanisation itself happened and urban processes 
in terms of housing work their way through in the world, we're looking at this globally, was, was through people housing themselves in those irregular, informal ways. And in many cases, that's outside of the formal market, but it was inside of informal markets where decent uh, conditions are not in any way regulated because they can't be. Uh, in many cases, those have now been regularized. Hundreds of millions of people have actually been housed now and they are now in regularized settlements. It's been enormously significant. So in many ways, these are definitely not failed states. Uh, that, you know, there, there was failures, if you like, of the formal market to house people, but these are very definitely not failed states. In many cases, they've been quite successful, particularly in Latin America. And I would just uh, draw your attention, in fact, everyone's attention to one other thing, which is something which I emphasize over and over again in this book, is that the issue of standards and of decent housing is something that we in uh, the wealthiest societies of the world frequently forget that you only have to go back just over a century or even less than a century in some cases to find situations where people were housed in extremely poor conditions, in slums that existed in our own societies. They were the norm for many people, particularly in the 19th century and into the early 20th century. And this book discusses this at some length. No one, I think, is saying that 19th century Britain was a failed state. Yeah. And our housing was appalling. Yeah. Uh, you also write that probably the most important route to address the market failure in supplying low-income housing, and one that has been of such fundamental significance in many cities of the global south, has been to legitimize informal housing with legal, officially recognized tenure, and the services that then tend to develop such housing is often upgraded. And then recognize, the recognized plot owners can enter into official housing market transactions. But doesn't that legitimize the informal market instead of punishing it? Doesn't that lead to the lowering of standards of adequate housing and endanger residents? How dangerous is allowing the informal market to be formalized into the formal housing market? Is informal housing a threat to the formal housing market? No, not at all. Not at all. Um, it's, I mean, it is, it is the most successful way of housing people affordably that has yet occurred um, in cities across the world. It's been phenomenally successful. Uh, I'm not saying, I'm not romanticizing this, by the way. Um, lots of people have lived in dire circumstances for a very long time uh, and before they're regularized. So many, many slums are never going to be regularized for various reasons, to, often to do with their location in very high uh, expensive areas, which property developers have their eye on. Right? Uh, but in many, in, in many societies, Africa, Asia, Latin America, this has been enormously successful and people's lives have been greatly improved. Um, and this goes back to you know, long-standing theorizing from the 1960s and 1970s about the way in which to improve uh, people's housing in these circumstances was to give them the right to the city, to give them a legitimate foothold within the city, and then they themselves will continue to improve their housing by gradual um, investment usually by themselves and their families. But this is greatly helped if you are given legitimate tenure and services. You need the water, you need clean water, you need the sewage, you need schools, you need clinics, you need some public transport or at least some decent roads, all these things. And these things have been laid on. So to go back to your point about, you know, failed states, many, uh, you know, societies in the global south have, have taken this on board and we're doing this very successfully. It's been chipped away at again, partly because of this change in the nature of capitalism. There's a very nice study, um, which your listeners can go uh, perhaps read by Peter Ward, um, who is a professor at the University of Austin. He taught me when I was an undergraduate, that was many decades ago, obviously, uh, and which looks at similar uh, 
types of irregular settlements on either side of the border of Mexico and Texas, colonias they're called. And one of the many things that he says about this is that in the, on the American side of the border, these are deemed as extremely bad things and that the lives of the people are made very, very difficult. And the provision of services to them is, is done with enormous reluctance. Whilst on the Mexican side of the border, this is not the case, and these are generally regularized, you know, in a, in a, a legitimized, and people's lives improve because of it. So the Mexicans are dealing with it better, if you like, than, than, than the Americans are. One last question for you. We have been speaking with geography scholar Dr. Dr. Deborah Potts, author of Broken Cities Inside the Global Housing Crisis. Debbie's previous books include her 2006 work, African Urban Economies, and the 2010 title, Circular Migration in Zimbabwe and Contemporary Sub-Saharan Africa. One last question for you, and as we do with each and every one of our guests, it is the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You talk about how these broken cities seem to be modeled to be turned into economic engines more than what they used to be, places that housed families and a lot of people and about being people about being centered towards people instead of economic engines what happens when a city becomes an economic engine and is no longer a place for people to live well that's a dystopian city isn't it it's something like a blade runner um as i say at the end of my book i mean i these these sorts of things one can, uh, you know, speculate about. And there is you know, sections of the book in which I discuss the way in which demographic sifting is occurring in cities, the global cities. I'm talking about the big cities of the world, the real global cities, the ones that are plugged into financial circuits and so on, uh, you know, New York, Mumbai, Sydney, and these sorts of places. Um, and that the way in which fertility has fallen in the most incredible way in such cities, all right across Europe as well, so that uh, in all of these cities on the whole, there is, you know, these cities would be shrinking year on year were it not for constant in-migration, both domestic migration and, and immigrants. Um, and the reason for these falls in fertility are very complicated, but it's partly because of the housing crisis is partly because of the unaffordability of housing um, and the increasing sort of financialization, as you say, of the cities. And this is not, a, you can see a situation, I mean, I postulated this book, but somewhat tongue-in-cheek, you can see a situation whereby cities such as these could turn around and say, we don't need families. We don't need multi-person households. We can just get by with single people, uh, you know, living in tiny lodgings and so on, because the jobs are here and they will just have to put up with it. But I don't think that's what's going to happen. I really don't. I mean, as I say at the end of the book, that is that would be convenient perhaps for employers and, and um, for capitalism. Uh, but I think that it's too neat and it's too negative a conclusion because cities are very messy places. They're politically messy, they're economically messy and socially messy and that's their strength. This is part of their strength. Um, and I think that the trends described in the book can be slowed and changed by concerted action by urban people. Um, and also I think it has to be remembered that despite the trends, um, future housing patterns still are mitigated by the built-in legacies of these patterns of previous ordinary home ownership and of regulated rentals, which mix the the, the picture quite a bit. Um, so I think, but really, I think the last point I would make is that I think these things can be changed. There is lots and lots of people doing their very best to do this, and I discuss this in the book. Um, and I think there is tremendous determination of city population populations to fight for their rights to the city. And I take hope in that. 
I am so glad that the thing that I love about the city more than anything else, its messiness, is the thing that may be the what saves us from neoliberalism. Uh, Debbie, I really appreciate you being on the show. This is really a fascinating book, and obviously we've only skimmed the very surface of it, and all of our listeners should check out your work, Broken Cities Inside the Global Housing Crisis. This really is a fascinating book, and I appreciate you being on the show with us this morning. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you for asking me. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. I always wonder if the guest is off the line by the time I say that tag. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Richard Norwood. This This week's question from hell is, you look amazing. What's your secret? You look amazing. What's your secret? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail wins our new gray on black. This is Hell Trucker's Cap. You can check out the new gray on black. This is Hell Trucker's Cap and all our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. And you have to have it in by the end of the show tomorrow. Because after Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, we will be announcing this week's winner. This week, Jeff waits for just the right moment. Richard, please share some more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell. What was the question again? Uh, Yeah, what the (laughs) hell was it? Uh, You look amazing. You look amazing. What's your secret? You look amazing. What's your secret? There you go. What's your secret? Chase C. says, staring deeply and longingly into the void for hours on end. Sorry, I totally messed that up. Staring (laughs) deeply and longly into the void for hours on end really does wonders for the complexion. (laughs) It does. It does really wonders. Warren L. says, luxury space communism. Why not? Mark Allen says, white privilege, fully paid health insurance benefits, and I don't live in a food desert. (laughs) Really nice. Jesus. David G. says, anti-capitalism after Marion Pants. Pants. I don't know that. Kaminsky Crackers. I'm going to assume that's not a real person's <laughs> name, so I can say it all. Uh, I love the way you lie. Oh, that's sweet. And Lisa B. says, a thin film of Vaseline over my webcam. <laughs> that's an age-old classic <laughs> film secret. Yes, always makes you look better. Egon S. says, embalming fluid. <laughs> that does make you look good. And what was our question from hell? What makes you look amazing? <laughs> you look amazing. What's your secret? And Ladio says, palm olive. Palm, ol- palm, palm olive. Palm olive. I'm soaking in it from the neck down. Oh, nothing like a joke from the 1960s. Andrew W. says, gorgon, baby, gone. <laughs> okay. Christine Christian. Christian H. says extreme sloth. Again, on tomorrow's show, we will be announcing the winner to this week's question from Hal. The question from Hal is, you look amazing. What's your secret? You look amazing. What's your secret? Leave your answer to this week's question on our Facebook page. Tweet it to us. Email it to us. And we'll be announcing the winner of the new gray on black. This is Hal Trucker's Cap at the end of tomorrow's show. Also on tomorrow's Thursday's live show, streaming at 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com. Sylvia Cifuentes will be discussing her scienceandsociety.org article, Territory, Autonomy, and Rights, Indigenous Politics, and COVID-19 in the Amazon Basin. Of course, we'll have the moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. As I said, Jeff waits for just the right moment on tomorrow's This Is Hell. Tune in live streaming here at 10 a.m. Chicago time on This Is Hell or listen to on, at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream. By the way, we are looking for new volunteer board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, as Alex has done nearly every day for several years now, as Richard is doing today, as Theron has done as well, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. With Alex's kid getting older and in-person schooling impossible during the pandemic, Alex needs to devote far more of his time to child care, all of which means we are looking for new volunteers to run the board and interact with me on air. If you'd like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. 
chuck at thisishell.com. This position does come with a very modest stipend, so keep that in mind as well. We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from one to two to three to four, even all five days every week here at our studio Chicago's in, at Chicago's Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, with shows beginning at 10 a.m. every morning. It's really easy. It's a very... It's not a very difficult task. It's very easy to learn. It takes you just a few minutes, maybe a couple of times around before you get comfortable. Uh, but I just want you to know that it's not like you don't have to have a lot of experience with running boards in order to be working for us. However, we are very flexible with your schedule. And if you can do it only you know, weekly or a couple times a month, we can work with your schedule as well. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. If you want to do your own podcast or you just want to make music. If you're interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at com. chuck at com. We want to thank a couple of listeners who went to thisishell.com and showed their appreciation for This Is Hell by clicking on support and contributing to the show. Thanks to Andrew G. and Simon S. for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com, where you can find all the ways to contribute to the show and see all our swag. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Richard Norwood. Thanks to Dr. Deborah Potts. Debbie, we really appreciate you being on the show today. Also, thanks to Richard Norwood with my most Sincere apologies. Yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind, I'm also a race and gender traitor. I'm very proud of it. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.